I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Bring, bring it Hello and welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hey, I'm Tad. I'm at Tad Predicts on Twitter, and I host the Tad Predictable podcast. Hi, I'm Steve McGookin, a Tottenham fan based in Belfast, and in a previous life, I used to be the chairman of the New York Spurs Supporters Club. Awesome. Thanks to you two so much for joining me today. And folks that are listening, thank you for coming back. Uh, I tweeted it out, but in case anybody didn't see, I've just been going through some personal and professional stuff. So the pod kind of slipped down the list of, of responsibilities, but appreciate you all hanging in there and uh, and the nice messages that, that you sent me. Um, but we'll jump straight into the football stuff. Uh, notably, no uh, Manchester or Newcastle United fans on today. They all were a bit preoccupied, which was uh, of course, with the Carabao Cup final in which Manchester United wound up being 2-0 winners. Um, I figured we should jump into this. We haven't really talked much about Manchester United since the restart, but they've lost just one match since then, and that was two uh, table toppers, Arsenal. So not too, too shabby a series of results for them, obviously capped off with the win today. Uh, at a large scale, what do you think Ten Hag has done to, to turn things around at this club so quickly, especially after kind of all the drama coming into the season? I, I think for me, the, the first thing was getting rid of Ronaldo. Um, <clears throat> on my podcast, I've, I've been calling him for the past two years since he came to United, both the arsonist and the firefighter, in, in Ronaldo, that is, because... There's no denying, obviously, what he's done in the past and, you know, arguably one of the best in the world, et cetera, et cetera, and one of the best ever, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but this version of Ronaldo in 2022 or 2023, I felt was a handbrake on Man United. He didn't really help the team much in terms of what they were trying to accomplish, either from a pressing standpoint or from a build-up standpoint. And yes, he'll still get his goals because that's the profile and the type of player that he is. Ronaldo will always get his goals, but does it overall benefit the team? Uh, I didn't think it did that. And it sort of hung over the United squad. So you had this, you know, mega star in there and, you know, United always buy big stars, but he was probably the pinnacle and, and respect based on what he's done in his career. You have guys like Rashford who... When they get the ball, their first thing they do is look to see where Ronaldo is and can I give him the ball? Before you even do anything else, that's the first thing you have to do, it almost feels. Whereas now we're seeing them with a lot more freedom, um, a lot more structure as well, um, a lot a lot more teamwork um, that has been afforded. I think the, the, yeah, so I think for Ten Hag, the important thing was getting rid of Ronaldo so that at least the big 
person in the dressing room is Ten Hag. It's not Ronaldo. It's not a player. It's not. I know Casemiro is now a, a big factor in that dressing room, but with Ten Hag removing Ronaldo, uh, benching Rashford when he was late for for a game and stuff like that, he's now stamped his authority. There's there's no disputing that he's the central point now at Man United. So for the players, you either get on board with what he's asking you to do, or you know you're going to be like Ronaldo and you're going to be out of the club. So I think that's been very important to establish him as, as the focal point there. And then um, in terms of just players and personnel stepping up, you know, I, I mentioned Rashford earlier. The only gripe I have with the, the Rashford good form is I'm I'm noticing pundits are associating with basically the shut up and play football mm. camp of things. It seems like, and that that's probably the only thing that's irritating me with the whole Rashford narrative. But uh, he's playing phenomenal at the moment. Um, one person mentioned to me the other day though that uh, is it a coincidence that it's in a contract year for him that he's playing this well? I, I don't know what you guys think. Oh yeah. Um... Yeah, and, and I agree with a lot of that, especially about the um, uh, Ten Hag getting rid of Ronaldo, you know, as you said, Todd, but uh, that was a crucial part of, of what uh, Ten Hag wanted to do when he came in. But of course, you know, if if, if Ronaldo hadn't been 37 years old, would, would he have been able to, to make that change before he had proven himself as the as the boss in a way now as uh, as for today's game i didn't actually see the game but i listened to it on the radio and it sounded like uh it sounded like man united were were good value for the for the win and you know newcastle just couldn't make anything happen in the, the, the brief periods of pressure that they had and it's very indicative i think of the two of the two teams form at the moment um, United obviously are playing with just tremendous confidence, um, and and as you say, obviously, understandably, a lot of that attention has been on Rashford. Uh, but if you look all through the team, you know they're incredibly well organised, very defensively resilient, and 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 great on the counter. Um, Casemiro, as you say, has been just a tremendous signing for them. He, he gives them that that steel in the midfield. But he's also a very, very skillful footballer in his own in his own right, and and he's he kind of their the modern equivalent of of Roy Keane, which is exactly the sort of player that you want to build a team around. Um, so huge credit to Ten Hag for for instilling the kind of self belief and discipline that that had obviously gone missing before before he arrived. Um, as far as Newcastle are concerned, you know five five straight. Cup final defeats is, uh, is is tough to take, but the fact that they're here at all, I think, is a, is a sign that they're building something for the longer term. Um, the combination of Eddie Howe and the, and the new ownership, and 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 I think the ownership of both teams is going to be a storyline for the for the coming months and you know then in the next season. You know how did how did Newcastle learn from this and and move to the next level? <clears throat> they'll probably have to, you know, strengthen the squad still further, and there, there, there could be uh, financial fair play considerations around that. What effect is this going to have now on their their race for the top four? Uh, and, and I think we'll come on to talk about that in a bit. But, uh, but if you look at at the the, the fans who made the trip down to Wembley this weekend, uh, and uh, just the if you saw the pictures of the Newcastle fans in Trafalgar Square last night. You know, showing the, that that kind of dedication that we always knew 
that club had, then at least that part of the job, you know, getting the fan base behind the club and buying into that, that that's definitely done. So you, you get the feeling that, you know, it, it won't be long before they're, they're back in another, in another final. Um, as for the other United, you, you don't, you don't get the impression that they're overachieving right now. And especially given how well they dealt with Barcelona over those, those two legs over the past few weeks. So, You'd probably expect them to be challenging for the title next season, if if not actually having a a pretty important say in the uh, in the run in and in what remains of this season. So uh, I think both teams from today's final can probably take some degree of um, uh, of optimism out of uh, how they performed and and what it means for them in um, uh, in the broader overall uh, campaign. Mm. Yeah, I think those are a lot of good points. And to your uh, question, Todd, about the career, uh, sorry, the the contract year situation, in American sports, that's been disproven several times, although uh, having huge ones like Aaron Judge's uh, 62 home run campaign in a, in a contract year uh, seems to be a very <laughs> loud and recent example of it, of it working out for a player. I think the times it works out sticks out more in our mind. I just, I find it difficult to believe that Rashford has struggled for two and a half years uh, finally got a manager that's playing him. Well, I was going to say his preferred position. I, he was supposed to be a striker, right? <laughs> and they just kept signing new strikers like Ibrahimovic and Lukaku and uh, Martial and all that stuff. But uh, last year he was being played on the right a lot more, and now he's playing on the left a lot more. Um, and I, I, I think maybe he's just playing in a system that suits him now in a position that's more familiar with him. Uh, and, and that's what we're really seeing. I, I'm sure there is extra motivation in a contract here. But um, I don't think he was like waiting to turn it on uh, until a contract year. I just think a, a lot of the stars are aligning at the right time in what could end up being a very financially beneficial uh, outcome for him. Um, yeah, the, the Ten Hag thing is really interesting. He started the year playing a 4-3-3, which I think a lot of people expected he would try to, to mimic what he did at um, Ajax at United and then basically immediately gave up after their rough start to the season. Um, into this 4-2-3-1, obviously playing Rashford on that left side. And I, I think it just suits a lot of their players. And and uh, you're talking about like the narrative around Rashford and he's shutting up, so now he's good at football, and that is very terrible. Uh, another player that there were really terrible narratives about was Lissandro Martinez, who, uh, because of his height, uh, people thought in a traditional back four, it just like wouldn't work out for him. But I think he's been really strong um, for large swaths of the year. Um, so yeah, I, I think players coming into their own, uh, today, Casemiro scoring a goal. I mean, it's easy to just look at like star players and big names, but, uh, that, that was a very big get for them in a position that they struggled for years to try to add to that midfield. Um, as they were continually playing Fred and McTominay every match, bringing in somebody with Casemiro's winning experience, which you have to imagine helped today and also his actual ability in his footballing mind. Uh, I think we're all huge gets. So I, I think that was all a, a big part of of the way they turn things around. Uh but Ted, as as for today, what did you make of their performance? Yeah, I, I thought they looked composed. I I think it was telling which team had uh the majority of players who have won something before. Mm. Um especially when it got to 2-0, it's almost as if the Newcastle players just sort of gave up or, or lost any sense of belief whereas I'm 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 quite I'm still quite raw of a team that that has champions in it going 2-0 down and still going to win a game um, from this past week. But let's not talk about Liverpool yet. Um, but <laughs> I, I thought for Newcastle, if it wasn't lost yet. 
you know, 2-0, get into halftime, get a, a, a team talk direction on what we should do for the second half. And if Newcastle get the third goal in the match, you're pretty sure that momentum is going to swing into their favor. So they weren't they weren't out of it, but the players were playing like they were at least three or four nil down at that point. Um, and United knew that, and they then started doing the antics of you know lying down a bit longer when when they get breathed on and stuff like that, which obviously it's just smart play and experience in being in those occasions, being able to take Newcastle's players' focus away from the game and executing the game plan and and trying to get into these small little battles that at the end of the day don't really matter. Just focus on on trying to, you know, get back into the game. So it, it was a very impressive performance from Man United from that perspective. Um, and then it's a launching pad. You know, any manager that comes in, you want to get a trophy as quickly as possible. And Mourinho has always, you know, been the manager that that that's that's emphasized how important a Carabao Cup run can be because it's a trophy so early in the season, it can springboard you for the rest of the season and and for the rest of your time as a manager there because it's sort of, he can breathe now. Yes, they've still got, I think, three more trophies to play for and they'll want to go and win them. But at the very least, at least he's got one now. So he, he now has bought himself time to then go and build whatever he wants to build at United. Similar to when Arteta came in at Arsenal, he went and won an FA Cup. Some people say, you know, if he didn't win that FA Cup, he wouldn't have had the amount of time that he's been afforded now. And, you know, we get the benefits of that. You know, for Arsenal fans, they get the benefit of that now. Yeah, I I think it's a a lot of good points. And I am concerned that it's going to kind of kick them on. And I guess the big question is, is what impact is it going to have on Newcastle? Will it deflate them? I agree with you today that they look deflated as soon as they started conceding, which I do think could could be that like winner's mentality thing. I think another part of it is their defense has been so strong this year to be 2-0 down is probably not a thing that they expected. Um, where they, they were expecting to be able to rely on their defense. Obviously, no Nick Pope was uh, a, a, a thing that was known coming into the match that would be a potential downside, but I, I really doubt that they thought that was going to be the case, especially after they had some pretty early chances. But I do agree with you. It, it did just look like they took like a really heavy gut punch and took a while to to get back into it. Um, but yeah, like I said, how are they going to recover? As Steve said, in theory, launch pad-wise, this is a great season for them, kind of regardless of what happens. But obviously, they're still going to be pushing very hard for those top four spots, which is unfortunate for our two clubs, <laughs> who are still kind of in the running for it. Tottenham currently in there, but uh, with a game I don't know out of hand. <laughs> is, that, is that a thing people say? Probably not. Um, uh, and then Liverpool, uh, a little bit further back, but I think with two games in hand on Spurs, um, which would close the gap to just three with us currently in fourth. Uh, and I was just wondering, you know, we were both in a Champions League final not too long ago. Uh, the Poch and Klopp comparisons during the projects were, were pretty similar. Um, and then all of a sudden it just kind of stopped for both groups. So I was just curious from each of you, uh, what's gone wrong this season compared to what went right last year? Yeah, I think for for Liverpool, it's not re-strengthening the squad when you're at the top. Like, I I don't know when else is a better time to capitalize on, you know, the success that you've had, on on, on the stature you now have as a club, 
after winning a Champions League and a Premier League title, that's the best time to go and recruit players because almost everyone wants to come to you. Um, and Liverpool just never did that. I think, you know, if you look at their midfield, I think it's been three, if not four years since they bought someone to play in midfield and it's starting to show. Um, I thought it showed last year, but it, it, it was kind of hard to make that argument because Liverpool, you know, went into every single inverted commas final, um, including the final day of the season last year. But I thought last year the midfield didn't look too great. Um, the, the signing of Diaz was really impactful in sort of helping us get through a bit of a slump. I, my worry is, uh, and, and I think I said it a, a couple of months ago, Kev, my worry is that with the style of owners that we have, we have to generate funds in order to, to do any sort of rebuild, especially the type of rebuild people are, are imagining. Um, and I just don't see us having enough sellable assets, bar a seller or a Van Dyke having to go um, because it, it, yeah, it, I'm struggling to see it unless the owners are willing to, you know, maybe leverage things a little bit and say, okay, we, we haven't done it in the past, but, uh, Klopp has earned the right to at least get some sort of better or, or bigger backing than, than in the past, then fair enough. But I guess my biggest concern is fine if the money is available and, and and we're in a utopia where Klopp gets backed he's allowed to sign whoever he wants I'm worried Klopp is still going to be the one making those decisions come yeah. the summer and that's 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 terrible like Michael Edwards was the one that was making those decisions he was the one that was in charge of sort of player personnel from a contracts perspective from a transfers perspective Klopp would just say we need this type of player we need a player that does X, Y, and Z. He sends it off to the data guys, the data analytics guys. Michael Edwards works with them. They produce a list of players. Um, you know, Klopp has a a vote on, you know, which players come in. You know, there's the infamous him not wanting Salah, him not wanting Mane, or Salah not even knowing much about him and, and questioning that one. But he kind of got vetoed <laughs> in those signings. That's not happening anymore. And... If you look at the little money in inverted commas, I mean, 40 million for Gakpo, that's not little money. But in inverted commas, the little money, as, as Liverpool fans are, are constantly talking about, that shows he still had money in January to do something. And he chose to go get Gakpo when he, when he needed a midfielder and he didn't address the midfield in the summer. I'm worried that those type of things will happen with Klopp um, in the position of power that he currently is in. So I hope that money gets given to to the to whoever's dealing with transfers, but probably bigger than the money coming in. I hope that Klopp's not the one making those decisions. And again, I always have to preface these things by saying it doesn't mean I'm Klopp out. It doesn't mean I think Klopp sucks or whatever, whatever. All I'm saying is that he's great at doing what he's great at. At 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 you know. We've seen it at Dortmund, we've seen it at Mainz, we've seen it at Liverpool. He's great working under a director of football where Klopp just focuses on the on-pitch stuff and developing players. One of the best football developers we've ever seen. But when he starts dealing with the off-field off, off 
off-the-field stuff, the player contract extensions. I mean, we're talking to Bobby Firmino at the moment for an extension. I cannot understand why that is happening other than Klopp stepping in and saying, you know, this is one of my boys. We got to sort it out like he did with Henderson. So, yeah, it, it's... Uh, I'm, I'm very worried about next season, Kev. And I'm not sure that Liverpool will as things stand, will be back to competing for a title next season. At best, I think it's top four next season with the way things are being run at the moment, which for me is irritating because that's another year. We've already sacrificed this year for the likes of Alisson, Salah, Van Dijk, etc. You only have these world-class players for an infinite, you know, for, for, for a certain amount of time. You've got to capitalize when you have them because the truth is, Unless you're you're a state-backed club or or Man United who who have the revenue and 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 capability and power to do it, there's no guarantee when the next one's going to come. I, there's no guarantee the next Salah is coming to Liverpool at some point in time. So us wasting another what I feel is going to be this year and next year of peak Salah, peak Van Dijk, peak Allison, Allison who's been Player of the Season for us this season would we we would be Wolves right now if it wasn't for. Allison and and the amount of expected goals that he's actually saved, um, yeah. So I guess next season's is fighting for top four, which which I'm very very irritated about. Yeah, you yeah. mentioned um, <laughs> the the Klopp situation, and I feel like we also have seen that at Spurs, right, Steve? Where like a manager succeeds enough on a pitch that he's trusted yeah. more to make decisions instead of the experts that made the decisions that led to that success. Yeah, I was exactly the point I was going to make, Kevin. It's interesting, Tad, that you, you talked about, or was it you, Kev, that talked about the uh, the, the arc of the Potch and Klopp um, uh, project uh, comparison? Uh, I mean, obviously, famously or infamously, we, we didn't strengthen the squad after uh, reaching the Champions League final in 2019. Um, and, and, you know, we're, we're seeing the consequences of it, of it since then. Um, and again, it, it does come back to what the ownership um, uh, outlook is going to be. Um, I, clearly, there are conflicting reports about you know who might be interested, what stage of the conversation that, that those talks are going to be at. But it's probably fair to say that the ownership probably isn't going to change this season. Um, maybe not even next season, depending on. Um, depending on valuation and that sort of thing, and and again, that's where you know Chelsea has has uh, changed the market. Um, now it seems like the valuations of of the top teams have have artificially increased. Um, so we're we're just going to have to wait and see what what happens there. But in terms of on the field uh, for the rest of this season, you know, you're asking what. What both our teams need to do to to get into the top four, I I, I would say you know it's it's obvious. It's just a matter of consistency. I think for both teams, it's it's just getting enough out of those top players. And 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 Tad's absolutely right to talk about how when you have world class players in your squad, you need to get the most out of them. I mean, we went through this, you know. <laughs> Time out a number, you know, Bale, Modric, Van der Vaart in the same team, and and you know we were 
essentially, uh, you know, you or I could have got a game at left or right back in that in that squad, and we didn't make a we didn't make a go of it, uh, and we don't we don't capitalize on the skill and the, 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 the sheer brilliance of players that, that uh, we have when we, when we have them. And, and we're seeing that with this current group as well. I think, you know, we're running out of time with Harry. We're clearly running out of time with, with Hugo. Um, and, and I think it, it's just a matter of, you know, making sure that enough of our top players, you know, don't have off days at the same time. And and again, it comes back to something you and I have talked about frequently, Kev. It's like just really winning the games we should be winning, given the respective strength of of the two squads. I mean, for us, it's it's like for every win we have over the likes of Man City or or like today over Chelsea, and and obviously what's happening over there will definitely be one of the the more interesting storylines for this season. Um, you know, we 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 can be relied on to have setbacks against. The likes of Villa or Leicester or you know Forest in the in the League Cup, and looking at today's game, um, you know the the first half was very typical of our our games recently, very typical, kind of untidy, scrappy, uh, nobody wanting to make a mistake, uh, but at least at least we didn't concede, at least we didn't go behind. Then in the second half, we're much better organised. You got the sense that once we went a goal up, that we you might not squander that lead like we have done on, on too many other occasions. Um, I thought we defended really well. And if we can maintain that sort of intensity and organization, I think over running games, we'll give ourselves a, a pretty good chance. In terms of the top four, mathematically, it's obviously within the grasp of both teams. But uh, obviously, as, as Tad pointed out, we've we played a couple of extra games uh, over Newcastle now, for example, but um, as they say, I suppose it's better to have the points on the board and and there are still way too many games to go, I think, to to assume that anything's locked down. You know, Fulham are still going to be there or thereabouts too. Um, Liverpool beat us 2-1 at home and we have to go to Anfield at the end of April. At, at the end of a week, actually, where we also play Newcastle and Man United. Uh, and, and and of the current top three, United are the only the only team we still have to play again. Um, so that week is going to be the decisive run of games for us. Um, but in terms of the top four, it's only going to be decisive if we can beat the likes of Palace and Bournemouth and, and a very tricky Wolves team, for example, um, before we head into that run. So Again, it comes down to, as I say, one word: consistency. And if we can, if we can get performances, anything approaching what we know the squads are capable of, you you would imagine that both Liverpool and Spurs would be would be challenging for that top four. Yeah, we could talk about this for ages, but Tad, on a on a scale of zero to ten, zero definitely not making top four, ten being definitely making. Where are you sitting these days? I'm sitting at a four. Um. <laughs> purely because i just haven't seen the consistency and it's it's uh, you know it's it's not like you can turn switch it on and off like a tap it's like an oil tanker trying to turn on form and confidence and i'm i've just not seen it from liverpool i think the the only thing that keeps it at a four and not lower is that there's no consistency from anyone in the league this season really (laughs) i mean even if you look at the, the the teams that are first and second they're way below the the standards that Man City have set in the previous seasons. Yep. So, you know, as bad as Liverpool are playing, 
we're still somehow in in the race for top four if we could just turn on you know if any of the teams that are in the mix could just go on a run of four wins in yep. a row yep it would be so huge but none of them can do it absolutely none of them so i i have no confidence picking which which of the teams will actually end up fourth it seems like man united with the confidence etc and the way they're playing they've kind of wrestled third away from everyone and then obviously the top two are the top two at the moment so i think anyone could take that that fourth spot at the moment yeah and steve where, where is your confidence on that same scale I'm probably around a seven right now. Um, the way things are, as I say, if we can, if we can keep defending the way we did today, um, in terms of, I think we have more winnable games left than we have games that are going to be in doubt. Uh, so I think it's it's down to us to um, to make the most of that. Gotcha. Yeah. And if Newcastle do slip up and, you know, Bruno might have picked up a, an ankle knock today. Uh, Gimaresh, sorry. There were two very well-known Brunos uh, in that cup final day that that could maybe uh, have an impact. But yeah, it's it's going to be it's going to be a tight one. But Tad, I, I think you you uh, most hit the nail on the head with no one's being consistent this year. And if anyone can find it, they're going to they're going to really succeed. Um, the last thing I want to talk about in this opening section uh, pretty quickly here. Uh, is clean sheets. So Steve just referenced uh, Tottenham's today. Uh, the five clubs with the most clean sheets in the league are also the top five teams in the table this season. Uh, also went back and looked. And last year, uh, at the end of the year, the five clubs with the most clean sheets also finished as the top five clubs in the table. Do you think this is like an indication that defense is or is becoming more important than attacking in the league? And if it is, how can teams kind of boost their chances? Is it a better idea to just try to lock down the back and try to not concede, but invite a lot of pressure. Is it try to uh, have counter pressure to mean that they, you aren't being attacked as frequently? Just curious your thoughts on, on if you think there's a correlation and if so, how can teams take advantage of it? I, th- I think the correlation relates to the quality of managers that we've seen come into the Premier League now. I think the, the game is a lot more tactical now just because you have managers that have, managed in Champions League or managed teams to titles and and trophies that are managing either mid-table teams or should I say traditionally mid-table teams or traditionally teams that would be struggling. How, you know, like a a Wolves that's near the bottom of the log has a Lopetegui with his pedigree. These games are no longer just, you know, our attack is going to be so good because we have more talented players. Yes, you might have more talented players, but we have an equally as talented coach as you do, and they're going to set the team up to make it really difficult for you to to try and break down. So I, I think that's been a huge factor is the the increase in quality of managers that we've seen in the Premier League, and and that's resulted in a lot more low scoring games uh, and, and games maybe being a bit tighter. In terms of its importance, I I think it's you know it's that adage saying of you know offense wins games, defense wins championships. We, I saw it as a Liverpool fan with the the times that we you know just missed out on the title with City. It was yes, we would we were an exciting team. We were scoring lots of goals. We were very scary on the counter attack, but we were so leaky defensively. And all of a sudden, you know, there there was a switch, and they decided to be more cautious and and more precious with the the goals that they conceded, not allowing teams to do that. 
we've seen it in the league. There's different ways of doing that. Um, you know, with Man City, maybe it's keeping the ball so that the other team just doesn't get enough chances to do it. With Spurs, very structured discipline, you know, sitting back and breaking on the counter. But I think also you've seen with, like, for example, if I use Spurs as an example, if I'm a manager, I'm looking at it and I'm saying, I've got Harry Kane. Just keep this game low scoring and I'm in with the chance to win this game. If I can keep this game to a one goal game, I'm going to back the fact that Kane's going to be the one to get that goal in this match. Or even if it's a, you know, a three goal game where, you know, two, one, I'm going to back that, you know, Kane and Son, obviously Son struggling at the moment, but those type of players are going to win me a game if I can just keep it low scoring. And it's been frustrating. Um, I guess it's as, as a, as a, from a, I don't know if it's second-hand smoke that you'd call it or not, but like watching Spurs games and when they concede silly goals, um, I could see my wife being frustrated because if we just eliminate the unforced errors, we've got enough firepower to win those games and see those games out. And I think a lot of teams have done that this season. If you look at um, Brentford with Ivan Tony, we don't need to give Ivan Tony 50 million chances. Let's just play a disciplined game and he'll see it through. Um, Man United have adopted more counter-attack in style. You know, you mentioned initially they started with that 4-3-3. So it, 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 I think maybe that's been some of the, the, the key factors with regards to the defensive side of things. And then obviously Newcastle have been phenomenal. Um, they're still a puzzle for me because when I see their back line and how slow they are, it doesn't make sense to me that they're so good at keeping clean sheets and, and conceding so few goals in the Premier League. But yeah, credit to them. They, they've been phenomenal in that sense. Yeah, I agree with all of that. Um, the tactics and the managerial input and that sort of thing. But again, it, it, it's the old question, as, as Tad alluded to, you know, what's more important, winning or, or not losing? And if, you know, obviously if the other team doesn't score, they can't win. But of course, it would be a, a pretty dull world of, any team drew 38 games nil-nil and uh, while a Loctite defence can get you a point, you obviously have to perform on both ends of the pitch. And, and your point about about having somebody like a Harry Kane or an Ivan Tony that you know can actually turn a game in an instant is uh, is, a, is a good one. Um, and, and, you know, as, we, as we've often talked about, Kev, you know, goal difference is probably the most accurate indicator of a team's prospects over the course of the season. Uh, although I think that is particularly true in the relegation uh, battle. Although, you know, to be fair, Forest have the second worst goal difference in the league and have scrapped their way out of that bottom three. So, you know, Bournemouth are the worst in terms of goal difference. And that's a clear indicator that they're having problems at, at both ends of the pitch. Um, but again, if you look at Chelsea, you know, it's not often you'd expect them to have a negative goal difference this late in the season. In fact, I think they're actually the highest placed team with a negative goal difference. I mean, ours isn't ours isn't great. We're about the same as Man U, and, and both of us are well behind City and Arsenal. Um, I was saying earlier about you know beating the teams you're supposed to beat, uh, and the difference is you know when we win those games, we're winning them by the odd goal, while you know City, as they showed yesterday, are, are, are sort of racking up big wins against lower teams. And I have a feeling that those those goals, that that difference, that a gap in the goal difference between them and Arsenal, 
uh, could actually prove to be to be crucial at the end of the title race. Um, so I, I suppose in answer to your question, you know, a, a good defense, a solid defense is key to building a platform to to challenge for for trophies. But if your if your goal scorers switch off, then you're you're just going to end up you know treading water. Uh, which is why you know we we have tried. I think Spurs have tried to um, improve the defense since um, well since the last the last couple of cycles, the last couple of transfer cycles. I mean, when did when did we get Romero? When did we bring Romero in? Um, uh, just was, for new now, and then immediately that's something. That's right. That's right. It was for new. I, mean, I, I lost lost my thread there for a second about about who had actually signed Romero. But then at the end of the day, he's still playing against Dyer or alongside Dyer, and and Dyer has become a better player for playing alongside him. But at the same, by the same token, we haven't. You know, we didn't get Bastoni. We went out and got Longley for one season. He's going back at the end of the year. Um, so if you're playing a three-man defense and and two of your players are, are not what you would call um, first choice on any other top four team, then um, I don't know. I don't know where that leaves us. It's 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 the old it's the old. Um, and and when I say two of your players, I mean any two of that three at any on any given week. Um, that's again back to the inconsistency. So it's it, it we need to we need to get a better a better back three if we're going to uh, if we're going to play um, the sort of um, approach that that Conte wants to play. But then again, you know, is Conte going to be making those decisions next season? Who knows? <laughs> True. All right, uh, we'll take a quick break, and then we'll be back with club specific questions for each of our guests. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. All right, and we are back. Tad, I kind of want to pick up where we were just talking about. We were obviously talking about inconsistencies and about um, the, the importance uh, of defense, but also of goal scoring, but how fleeting it can be. Um, in the last five Premier League matches, uh, Liverpool have not fared particularly well. I think two draws, a loss, the win against uh, Everton in there as well. Um, but you've been top five in both goals conceded and shots on target in that period, which... In theory, if you're doing both things in, you know, the top quartile of the league, you'd imagine you'd be performing more consistently. So we've already touched on some of the inconsistency and in results. Um, but why do you think we're, we're seeing that inconsistency when, in theory, some of the underlying stats seem to imply that you're just pretty good at both ends of the pitch? <laughs> it's it's difficult to say, but it it could be just the, the lack of confidence that's spread throughout the team. Um, there's no 
cohesion with Liverpool at the moment. If you look at the front line, um, and Salah has spoken about it, and I, 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 I just as a side note, if, if I'm if I worked for like Sky or something like that, I would always want Salah to do interviews because it's almost as he has this innocence about him where he reveals too much sometimes. But anyway, um, he he was talking about the um, the link-up play between him and and Gakpo and and Darwin Nunes and saying it will it's it I can see it will come. We're working on it in training, and I can see it's getting better and better, but it's not quite at that level that obviously he he can picture that one it can be, and to the you know the Firmino Mane link that he had, he knows where it can get to type of situation. But if your front line has issues with chemistry, and then our defense, which is just devoid of any confidence, whichever person's playing next to Van Dyke. If it's not Ibrahima Kanate, they're just not playing well. Gomez and Matip are, are both having woeful seasons this season. Then you have Robertson that's been okay, but not the old Robertson. And then on the other side, Trent, who I mentioned at the beginning of the season that I was worried that this was like um, his, I, I called it like the Delhi Ali or Ross Barkley season where a player's been told their whole life that, you know, that they are the second coming. And at some point, they're going to start to believe it. And there's a fork in the road. They either believe it and it drives them to go be, you know, the greatest ever, or they think, oh, I can coast now because I am the greatest ever. You know what I mean? And, and they no longer apply themselves. So I, I worry that's happened with like a Ross Barkley, a, a, a Delhi Ali, where coming, you know, growing up, these kids were phenomenal and, and could have become, you know, absolutely sensational players, but they've not quite reached those heights. Trent comes in, he's changed the way people play fullback and what we require from our fullbacks, but he sort of, he doesn't have that hunger anymore. It, to me, it looks from the outside looking in, um, he feels like he's he's made it and he doesn't need to graft in the way that he used to graft. And and that's been worrying for me. And as I said, at the beginning of the season, I said, this is his Deli Ali season. He needs to decide which way he goes. And at the moment, he's, to me, he's chosen the wrong way. Um, and I, I hope he can course correct. And you always hope that players like that can course correct and, and find that motivation and discipline and determination again. But again, so if Trent's not playing well, and then the right-sided centre-back's not playing well, it's just horrendous on that side of things. And then our midfield, which has been a problem for a while now, um, I I don't understand how we continue to play the way we're playing and Klopp continues to stick with this 4-3-3. You mentioned Ten Hag coming into United, seeing it wasn't working, changing it. It's probably a bit harder for Klopp because this is the, this is the, the, the type of system that won me so much at Liverpool, um, you know, relatively speaking. Um, so I think it's hard for him to let go of that system. But the players that he currently has at his disposal don't suit the system. So he either needs to bring in players that suit the system or make a system that suits the players he insists on keeping. And until he figures that out, I, I don't see Liverpool doing much uh, this season. And then, as I said, Alison Becker has been phenomenal. Um, he he genuinely has kept us, you know, floating at the moment. Without him, I'm I'm 
uh, I mentioned earlier, we would be wolves. I think we would. I think we would fifteenth or sixteenth if you, you take away the impact that Allison has had and you you sub in the average impact of the league so far. You know, league keepers this season, we would drop way down and would be around fifteenth, sixteenth is where we'd be. So that's how big a difference he's made. So I think the numbers, again, also with the numbers, I don't know if um, Kev, you factored in the fact we beat. Bournemouth 9-0 at one point this season as well. <laughs> um, so that skews numbers quite a bit too. So um, yeah, like the goal difference and stuff, I, I would factor in that game as, as something that's inflated our numbers quite a bit. But we, yeah, we look we look pretty bad um, in my opinion at the moment. Um, and I, I, I don't, the commentators were talking about how we've, you know, we've kept some clean sheets recently, uh, you know, in the Premier League, and maybe that's a, a building block. Those clean sheets were kept in very suspect ways, and maybe sometimes it takes three dodgy clean sheets for you to then, you know, just take the positive from the game, and and, and it gives you the confidence. But none of those games have been convincing, you know, clean sheets. They've all been very scrappy. Allison having to play at a ridiculously high level. And yeah, um, Newcastle had a better expected goal than us in the game that we played against them, and they had ten men. So yeah, gotcha. Also, um, me framing the question is: if your attack is good and your defense is good, why aren't you great? And then you bringing up that your midfield continues to be a point of issue uh, <laughs> kind of felt uh, like a pretty strong uh, a reason there. If the middle of the pitch is where where things aren't <laughs> happening as well for you, um, you mentioned Salah there as well, and, and some of the formational stuff. And I have seen a fair few Liverpool fans complaining about how far uh, he's playing, how, how close to the touchline he's been playing, rather than closer to the goal where he can have a, a, as big an impact. Do you think that's a thing that's being requested of him? Is he just drifting out there more? Uh, do you think it's to accommodate Alexander Arnold, who obviously plays on that same side? Well, uh, well, a, do you agree? And b, if so, why, why do you think he's he's playing that way this year? So we tried to do this weird thing this season. Um, I don't know if it was trying to, re, you know, rejig things or trying to be too clever. But what we've done this season is Trent, when he was driving forward, used to go on the outside. And then Salah would be on the inside and the right-sided midfielder would sort of run through the middle of that, so to speak. So that's why the whole Salah would be closer to goal. Whereas this season, heading into this season, and for most of the games this season, Trent is the one that goes inside. They're almost trying to move Trent closer to goal. Sort of, he becomes the right center midfielder. Um, Salah is the right winger, and then the right center midfielder runs through the middle. Whereas in the past, it would be Salah would be sort of the hybridy right center midfielder. Uh, Trent would be out wide and then the, the right center midfield will go through the middle. I'm trying to draw a picture as I'm saying it, but I, I don't <laughs> know if I'm explaining it that well. But effectively, of those three people in the in the pattern, Salah is now the one that's been asked to be the furthest wide. Whereas of those three, the the right back, the right center midfielder, and the right forward, Salah is now being asked of those three to be the widest. Trent's now being asked to be the one in the in in the inside, and the midfielders being asked whether it's Henderson or whoever to be the one in the middle. Previously, Salah would be one on the inside, Trent would be on the outside, 
the midfield will be in the middle. So that switch between Salah and Trent, um, of one going outside, the other going inside, has been very frustrating to see and has led to Salah being isolated, talking to the linesman for half the game. And the worrying thing for me is this was a system that Pep Linders used when he there was a there was a time when he left Liverpool um, to go coach in the Eredivisie. It didn't go well. He got fired. He came back to Liverpool, <laughs> um, and and sort of got his old job back at Liverpool. And all of a sudden, this season we've decided to try that that system, and it's not working that well. Um, so I, I don't know if they're going to fix it or not. But yeah, I think that's been the reason. Salah's now being the one asked to be the wider one, wherein it, it's just not working. Also, if you go look at the amount of touches that Salah is having. It's the lowest he's ever had at Liverpool. And it's weird to think that your most, you know, he's the one that's created the most big chances, created the most expected goals. He scored the most goals. He's gotten the most assists under Klopp. Yet we're giving him less and less of the ball. That doesn't seem to make sense to me at all. In theory, putting Trent Alexander-Arnold, one of the best crossing right wing backs in, or right backs in the world, further out, and then Salah, uh, an elite goal scorer nearer the goal, that seems like it would play to their strengths. Maybe do that. One would think. One would think <laughs> that, and and they've done it in the past. So yeah, yeah. I, so I obviously, know. really good success. Uh, so yeah, I can imagine why why that's a very frustrating thing to continually watch week in week out. Uh, Steve, speaking of continually hard to watch week in and week out, uh, Tottenham Hotspur. Um, who have been, uh, as we've talked about kind of all show, just very inconsistent throughout the season. You could argue that our most consistent run of the year has been this year under Christian Stellini, um, who obviously has been filling in while Antonio Conte... Yep, exactly. He's now, I think, 7-0 all-time replacing Conte when he's missed matches uh, via suspensions or this this medical issue. Um, a lot of people have been joking about, you know, Stellini and Conte out. That's obviously not how it works. Obviously, it's still Conte's tactic. Stellini is the one uh, installing it during training and then obviously uh, managing on, on match day. And obviously, we've also heard a, a lot of really nice things about Ryan Mason recently and mm-hmm. the impact that he has on that coaching staff. But I just wanted to get your thoughts on this. Why do you think it seems like we're playing more freely under Stellini, even though it's still Conte's tactics? And what role do you think he's actually having in this recent run of success? That's really, really interesting question, Kev. Um, and talking of managerial influence, I just wanted to pick up on on something that Tad said that I actually absolutely agree with, and that's about players having a Delhi Alley season. And if you think back to the the Amazon documentary um, that that they did on uh, on Spurs and that conversation that Mourinho had with Delhi in yeah. his office, you know that that is essentially that must be happening in every club with at least one player every season, where a manager is frustrated that the player just isn't either aspiring or isn't just reaching what they know what and, and an elite manager can tell what the potential of every player he has under him is um and and you you could tell the frustration that Mourinho was experiencing um but you could tell also that he was holding back i think because the cameras were there but it was something that he wanted to put on record 
Um, and it, when we saw the the result of that, it clearly it didn't uh, it didn't get through to to one of the best players I think we've ever had at the club. Uh, w- well, one of the most naturally talented players we've ever had at the club. Now, in terms of the Stellini Ryan Mason situation, yes, awesome uh, caretaker manager. Uh, if you believe what the what the reports are. Uh, that uh, uh, Conte is on the phone with Stellini during the game and and speaks um, at great length to him afterwards and at halftime and passes on uh, his feedback on on what he's watching. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm guessing he also suggests that the substitu- uh, the substitutions when they when they happen as well. Um, the, the the problem with with being a a, a caretaker or or someone's proxy is that you don't know what their own identity is in a way, other than just being able to to calm the players and make sure that they understand that there is continuity. And I think having Rand Mason there really adds to that to that sense of uh, of the collective, the group, and and how we're sort of moving forward um, as a as a group. So in in terms, I mean. I think we've moved we've moved past the Conte argument surely by now, haven't we? Um, it, 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 we have a manager. Uh, we have a manager who happens to be one of the one of the best managers in the world. Why aren't we trusting him? And why aren't we backing him the way we're supposed to do? And once you ask that question, the answer becomes clear. And we we hinted a little bit earlier on about um, the the change in ownership at both Liverpool and Spurs, uh, and the potential for where that might take us down the road. But again, there are so many cards up in the air when it comes to um, who who is actually making the decisions about personnel, and who is actually setting the the, the tactical approach for the club. Um, that I. I Quite frankly, we should be grateful that we have someone like Christian Stellini who can step in and and just and calm the ship and 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 essentially say, you know, we have a manager, but he's just not here at the moment. He stepped into the next room for now. Yeah, and not only is it kind of worked out in the short term, but I also wonder if just taking a break might might help Conte as well because you could yeah. you could see how uh, displeased he was, but also maybe just physically in pain from well from you, could, surgery, you could so. tell from the uh, from the Milan game from the press conference at the at the first uh, leg in Milan yeah. that he he just he's not well the man right. the man needs to and and obviously rushing back uh probably didn't help so yep. you know i hope i hope he gets uh, hope he's getting the convalescence that he uh, that he needs obviously he seems to be the sort of man that obsesses about football yeah. uh like and we know how terrible that can be. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, he he is our coach. He is yeah. our manager, and and uh, you know he's he and, and Stellini is a good deputy because Stellini never never undermines that relationship. Right. Yeah, and he's only said nice things in, at every single opportunity, which he's had a lot of with people asking when Conte would be back in his role. Um, uh, we'll head into player watch next. I just wanted to know uh, about a player at your club that might be getting uh, more minutes than you expected coming into the season, either due to injuries or, or poor performances and the players ahead of them. I was on mute and I was laughing when you were saying that because the, the, I was thinking of Henderson and um, <laughs> I was just like, maybe I'm being too harsh on the guy. But 
to me, it, it's got to be Harvey Elliott. If you look, um, he's had the most minutes of any teenager in the Premier League this season. And I, I want to say 80% of them have been as the right-sided midfielder in a midfield three. And he's just not a midfielder at this stage of his career. Um, he's a wide forward. Um, he's not fast enough to play that midfield role in terms of, you know, the pressing that we we ask the player to do, the defensive acumen that you need on that side when you have Trent Alexander-Arnold on that side as well because, you know, Trent's not the best defender and, and that's been mentioned throughout his career. But it, it just baffles me that he's had that much amount of time playing as the right-sided midfield in the midfield three. And it's... And to me, it's not working, but he seems to still get the minutes. Um, yeah, the other contenders would be the likes of Henderson, et cetera. But Henderson's always going to play just because of the stature that he has at the club, um, the relationship that he has with Klopp, the relationship he has with the players, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I just think at this stage of his career, they need to start managing him and I, I don't understand why that would be a negative thing. We've seen the likes of Modric and Kroos be managed for years by Madrid where they don't need to play every game. They just need to play the important games. And those players are fine with it. But dare you say that in, in the English Premier League, you know, that someone is being load managed, so to speak. Um, I think people just lose their minds or, 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 you know, equate it to the players being dropped or something instead of, actually, this is going to benefit us. Because Henderson, when he's had a two-week break, three-week break, he plays phenomenal football. It's when we play him three, four games in a row that he just isn't capable physically of doing that anymore. And there's nothing wrong with you know saying that. It doesn't take away all the things that he's accomplished at Liverpool, etc. He's just not that player anymore to be playing week in, week out. So I, I don't get why he's playing that much. But yeah, um, it would be Harvey Elliott for me because I don't think you should be relying this much on a teenager. Um, and it seems like we switched teenagers because it was Harvey Elliott. Now all of a sudden, Basetich has been starting every game. And yes, he's been playing well. But mm. again, if, if a teenager is playing that many minutes for a team that has that many senior players in its squad, something is wrong. Or that teenager is a generational talent. And I, I unfortunately, I don't think... Harvey Elliott's a generational talent. Could could he be a talent in the future? Sure. But I don't think he's a generational talent. So, yeah, something's broken in the team for for that stat to be a thing. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And it was a good point, Tad, about load managing. And I think that uh, has been slightly skewed when it comes to Harry because of his pursuit of the, uh, the scoring record, both with Spurs and with England. Um, so that that is a, a, a question that I think is going to have to be addressed uh, going down the road. Um, obviously, I, I, you know, a, it was a huge blow losing um, one of our most influential players when when Bentancourt got injured. But on on the upside, I think uh, Skip ha- has has stepped in and done really well. And I, you know, you saw it today. I think um, uh, the, the confidence that comes, I think, from from knowing that he's going to have a run of games alongside Hoiberg. Um, and that that'll be good for him and, and help him. Um, <clears throat> I think up front, as I say, we, we've got the 
the Harry situation where we still have to work out uh, Richarlison, Son, Kulisevsky, what, what, how to get the best out of the three of them in combination, in the various combinations. Um, I mean, we, we, we know all three of them are good, talented players who are, who are capable of turning a game. But again, you know, it goes back to the consistency thing that we were talking about earlier. You're often uh, not sure what you're going to get from from two out of the three of them. But but I think the one constant there is that they all benefit from having Harry drop deep uh, into that Ericsson role, and and they're able to run off him. Um, so I I definitely think that that you know we we can work that around the um, uh, using the substitutions to. Uh, to to balance out who who's better running off Harriet in any um, in any given game, but I, I have to say, and I'm sure you agree, Kevin, the most fascinating story in in terms of our personnel uh, so far this season has been uh, to watch the rebirth of Emerson Royale uh, after the Pedro Porro signing. You know, so far we've basically spent forty million pounds to to get the best out of a twenty five million pound player. I mean, long may it continue, but, you know, some of us are kind of desperate to see what Pedro <laughs> Porro can actually do, you know? Well, we got to see him as a right winger for three minutes today. <laughs> Hopefully we'll get to see more of him for sure. But it, it is exciting. It's, it's not, I think, what many people would have expected. I think, um, uh, you know, who scored, different people have different opinions about the uh, uh quality of their information but it had emerson as basically the player of the match for the third straight match in a row <laughs> um which i just find to be particularly fascinating but but yeah totally agree with you on, on all of those points and we'll wrap up here with match previews uh tad you're going to be facing wolves who you <laughs> likened yourselves to had you not had allison uh what do you think you'll see in that one? Oh, i'm worried about that i think we've played them 50 times this season and they've just gotten better and better at um dealing with us they've 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 got runners from midfield and that's probably our biggest akita's heel is people having energetic runners from midfield because our midfield just can't keep up physically um with with that anymore so uh i'm very worried about that game i think i can see us i'm hoping we we sneak a win but i can see us at best getting a draw against uh, a team that's got a lot of exciting players that they've brought in as well, especially, you know, Sarabia getting on the score sheet recently. Um, uh, yeah, I just think they're going to outmuscle us in midfield and, and be too quick for us on the transition. If we can change our style of play, hopefully, maybe we can, we can get something from it. Why don't we just adopt the sit back and play on the counter we've got the pace of Salah Gakpo once he gets moving is pretty decent obviously Darwin Nunes if he's fit enough to play the game he's a counter-attacking style of player um yeah I, I I just worry about them picking us off on the counter really gotcha and then uh Steve pretty big uh cup match for us since uh FA Cup is really the only meaningful thing that we can win this season. Sheffield United, uh, you mentioned load management. Do you think Harry will start up front? Well, I mean, the interesting thing about that is we all knew, didn't we? We all knew as soon as the draw was, when, you know, when the draw was about to be made, we knew because it was still, um, it could have been Wrexham at that stage. And, uh, you know, that was before the, they went out in the replay. And we knew that given the way our season was going, that was the game that we were going to get. Um, 
yes, we could. Uh, we could have trouble actually at Sheffield United. It's um, a wet Wednesday in the north, and um, it, it, it's the sort of the sort of game against a very very good uh, championship team that separates the uh, the wheat from the chaff. Uh, I have a feeling that they won't rest Harry for that um, simply because as you say this is our our chance at silverware this season and uh, and Harry's the sort of player who wants to play every game anyway but I, I honestly think we'd need him uh, I think it's more likely that we'll probably keep Sonny on the bench uh, and play Kulisevsky and Richarlison uh, off Harry um, but you know again it, it's the sort of tie that nobody really wants. But then at the end of the day, I'm kind of glad we didn't have to go to Wrexham um, because that would have been the... We're either um, the villains or we lose. <laughs> that would have, exactly. That would, that would have been the Hollywood script um, ending that they were looking for. But um, but there we go. Gotcha. Uh, well, we will wrap things up there for anybody wondering why we didn't talk about Graham Potter. Because uh, like the last six weeks, he was about to be sacked and then they keep saying that he's not going to be. So if we missed that and he is sacked by the time you hear this, not our fault. Uh, Boy Who Cried Wolf a few too many times with those Chelsea results. Uh, but if you guys would like to tell folks where they can reach you or anything you've been working on, that was a great time. Um, yeah, you guys can catch me on the predictions podcast called The Tad Predictable on the EPL Index channel um, and then everything that I'm involved in will be at Tad Predicts on Twitter. Well, thanks very much for having me on again, Kevin. That was a lot of fun. Uh, I, I Just before I go, I'd just like to say uh, uh, for people of my generation, uh, rest in peace, John Motson. That was um, that was sad news this week when we when we heard that he had gone. Uh, he was the the voice of football for my for my generation growing up so uh i uh, appreciated his work um you can find me at uh, at steve mcgookin on twitter or uh if you want to look at my non uh football writing uh go to statesofplayproject.com uh and if you're visiting new york for a game go to nyspurs.com Awesome. Thanks to you two so much for joining me today. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries. You can find me on Twitter at Kevroff. You can find the show at EPL Roundtable and by searching EPL Roundtable in all of your podcast services. But yeah, big thanks to these two and folks at home. We hope you keep listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.